Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. A century before the American Revolution, a sweeping Indian rebellion sent New England reeling. Led by Medicom, known locally as King Philip, warriors raided and devastated Puritan towns on a massive scale. Considered by many as the bloodiest per capita war in American history, King Philip's war left a permanent scar on the psyche of the Puritans' great city on a hill. On this episode, we discuss King Philip's War of 1675. It's the season six premiere. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 6 of the series, we're discussing American rebellions and the competing visions that help shape the modern United States of America. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter by searching Wartime Podcast or at Brady Kreitzer. You can visit our Facebook page. Join the discussion there. It's growing leaps and bounds every day. Facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website for news, updates, and events, BradyKreitzer.com. While you're there, pick up a copy of my new book, War in the Peaceable Kingdom, The Catanning Raid of 1756. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web. Exclusive bonus content, ways to contribute to the site, and really your home base for everything wartime, wartimepodcast.com. One of the great things about America, really one of the great things about any democracy in the world, is that everybody has an opinion on how it should look. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, you may have missed the fact uh, that we just had a presidential election in this country, and we have one every four years, at least if we're doing it right. And I love election years. And I love them because it brings out everybody's emotions, everybody's passions. Because we all have competing and conflicting sometimes visions of what America should look like. I want you to think about the hottest, uh, most fiery political debate you had in 2016. And then I want you to think about the end of that debate. Pulling out a gun, a knife, or a hatchet, and killing the person that you're debating with. That just doesn't happen. Hey... We had a pretty fiery Thanksgiving. This year, it might have been a little more uh, Trumpsgiving. Uh, but nobody died as a result of our political debates in my family. Uh, but what happens when politics becomes so heated and so divided that the only way to settle the score is through violence, warfare, and open rebellion against the powers that be? That is serious politics. And for me, it's why I believe that in the 250-year history that the United States has existed as a republic, and really in the 400-year total 
uh, habitation of North America when Europeans and native peoples first meet. I really believe that a competing vision for what the new world promises you and that desire to see your vision win is one of, if not the most pertinent driving feature of American life. If you're in the UK, if you're in France, you've been through these kind of debates. And France, you have an election coming up. Britain, you just had one too. Um, debates are healthy. But violent rebellion is a breakdown in that system. And here in this season, season six, amazingly, and this will take us to unbelievably 100 episodes, we're going to look at the rebellions, the successful and not so successful, that in my opinion really shaped uh, the course and the color and the texture and the direction of the American Republic. We're going to talk about rebellions here in this season that began in the 17th century. We're going to talk about rebellions that continued into the 20th and maybe, who knows, 21st. But there's a lot. And the issues when it comes time to pull out guns and weapons and fight, and not just one-on-one -on -one, but in terms of armies, the issues are vast. And even though the 17th century, in the case of tonight's episode, seems very distant, we must at least recognize that they must have been very important at the time. So we're going to talk about rebellions. Uh, some of them are actually called rebellions, some of them aren't. Some of them we've already talked about so we can skip over in previous seasons. Uh, but all of this leads to, again, the driving force of a republic. And the driving force of the promise of America. Uh, it's that everybody has a vision for it. In the end, only one wins. Or maybe not. Let's talk about it. The feature of tonight's episode is going to take us to a place we think we know really well. And a story that we're all pretty comfortable with. But as we'll see as the night goes on and the episode progresses... It's a story that has many more layers to it than we think, and is much darker than many people ever imagine. We're going to talk about colonial New England. Now, as a brief refresher, what brought Europeans to the New World in the 17th century? Well, take your pick. Mostly, it was the tendrils of empire. How can we expand our power base and expand our revenue base, a commercial enterprise that England was trying to build. You had that. You had that in Virginia. Maybe you had the Spanish in Central America, and South America, and Florida, building this massive commercial empire based on taking gold and silver out of the New World. But that wasn't everything. In fact, if you listen to season one of Wartime, we spent a lot of time talking about how the American colonies are all founded for different reasons by different people, looking for different things. New England, and we get into it there. Uh, boy, that's a doozy. And it's one we definitely want to talk about. Now, we all know that old story about why the Puritans came to the New World. Religious freedom. We did a whole episode on it in season one. But I would stress to you now, as I stressed then, they really weren't coming here from England 
for what we think of in America today as religious freedom. They were coming for religious isolation. That is to say, they didn't want to establish a world, a puritanical wonderland, a utopia, where everybody could worship as they pleased. They wanted to establish a world where they could worship the way they pleased, and everybody else could go sail a boat. That's important. It's important in the conception of what brought Puritans to the New World, and it's important for what kept them here. Again, it gets back to the central theme and question of this entire season. What kind of a new world will this new world be? For the Puritans, they had a very clear answer for that. But what about the people who were already here? What about the people who had a way of life in place in what will become Plymouth Colony, Massachusetts Bay Colony, Connecticut Colony, New Hampshire Colony later, uh, and Rhode Island? There were people here, and lots of them, and like the Puritans who traveled all the way across the world, they also had a vision for what that world should be. And it's where the story gets very familiar, but also very complicated. There was a number of native tribes in what would become known as the Dominion of New England. And they had different alliances, different visions. How they saw the world was fundamentally different than how the English saw the world, but it was also different how some of their other neighbors saw the world too. I always like to say, don't fall into the trap of thinking of Indian nations, uh, native peoples, as being singular in their thought. The English and French would never say they were the same, even though to the Indians they did look the same. Uh, and the existing native groups here in the New World also had very different visions uh, for what the world should look like, and they all fit into it in a different way. When the Puritans arrive in the first part of the 17th century, again, we know the story. Uh, Times are tough, the travel was difficult, a party of Indians comes from the woods, and you have the first Thanksgiving. Everyone lives in peace. And as much as we tell that story, there was a lot to it. It's a story that makes us feel good about who we are as a people and where our origins lie. But it's also one that we, I would argue, fundamentally misunderstand. Puritans, or the Pilgrims, whatever you want to call them, when they arrive, um, didn't find this place where everybody got along. Uh, they survived. They functioned. They were allowed to exist in the New World because of the generosity of the preeminent Indian power in the region. The most powerful chief in the region was a name you might know, Massasoit. And Massasoit saw these people were really no threat. He taught them to farm. He taught them to settle. He taught them how to survive here. But he could have just as easily had them all killed on the spot. A massacre right on the beach. Boy, would Plymouth Rock be a different place. Now, I'm not saying this to be like a contrarian. I'm not saying it to burst anyone's bubble because the first Thanksgiving did happen. Uh, but what I'm, the reason I'm going into this is because you have to ask yourself, what if there was a different sachem, a different chief in power that wasn't Massasoit, that wasn't as open-minded and generous as Massasoit? What if it was anybody else? 
and the Puritans would come off this boat just to be mowed down on the spot. The ball always keeps bouncing, and Massasoit's time will quickly slip away. There was a basic arrangement between the English and the existing native tribes in New England in the 17th century, and it was that the English had their sphere they would operate in, and the Indians had theirs. And because the Indians were allowing the English to be there, uh, the English would have a much smaller footprint, I think it's safe to say, in the New World. And for 50 years, the first 50 years of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Plymouth Colony and Rhode Island and Connecticut, uh, things go pretty well. But eventually leadership changes. Visions change. Expectations are altered. And this is when you start to see the seeds of a rebellion, or at least maybe the earliest frictions emerge uh, in the 17th century. We're going to fast forward to 1675, again about 50 years after that first wonderful, glorious Thanksgiving when the very first balloons floated down uh, the streets of Manhattan. That's not true. Uh, but we'll talk about it. Al Roker, not there either. The new leadership of the dominant Indian power in the region, the Wampanoag peoples, was a man named Metacom. He would go in English circles uh, as King Philip. But his native name, Metacom, was important. He was 24 years old. He understood the dynamic I just explained to you. That the only reason that the New World was peaceful for the Puritans, the Pilgrims, was because his father, Massasoit, allowed it to be peaceful. Warfare was breaking out all over North America. And it was breaking out largely between European settlers, the English mostly, uh, and native peoples who welcomed them there in the first place, some more openly than others. Uh, you have to understand the middle of the 17th century has a lot of wars. In the Ohio country and then around the Great Lakes beyond that, you have a war called the Beaver Wars. The Iroquois are fighting with some enemies uh, over access to French trade. In Virginia, an episode we did earlier in the series, uh, you have Bacon's Rebellion. And now, really bubbling over in New England, you have uh, Medicom or King Philip, who's becoming very, very distressed about what he's seeing. And what he's seeing is that the promise, the deal, the treaty, uh, the contract, whatever you want to say, that his father had with the first English settlers in the region seems to be null and void. Again, think about where the Puritans landed. Plymouth, the very eastern tip of what is today Massachusetts. Well, by this point, they have expanded far beyond the bounds, unofficially, of course, uh, that the two parties agreed on. They've gone as far as the Connecticut River. And beyond that, they have a village at a place called Deerfield. And Deerfield is still in Massachusetts today. That's a big swath of land. I mean, if you can visualize Massachusetts with Boston in the Far East, uh, you're talking about three-quarters of the, of the modern state goes from Boston to Deerfield. So the English have really greatly expanded New England. And they've expanded in such a way uh, that 
they have very little regard for the deals of the past. Again, the Puritan mindset is not one where people have religious freedom. We're always having that beaten into our minds as kids. It's religious isolation. It's not any way you want. It's their way or the highway. And that mostly includes Indians too. If an Indian is not Christianized, then his soul is not saved. And if his soul is not saved, he is a savage. He is someone who maybe can't be saved. He is someone who can't appreciate the benefits of a Christian benevolent God. So you start to see atrocities emerge. You start to see uh, Indian peoples killed. Uh, you also start to see Indian peoples killing English settlers. You have this friction of a frontier emerging. And that's something we talk about a lot, again, in previous seasons. Uh, but things are hot. There's this ethnic tension. There's this racial tension. There's a religious tension. And there's even an economic tension. Again, as the English expand their influence beyond uh, their original boundaries toward the Connecticut River and beyond, they're taking away trade opportunities that had existed for uh, many decades for native peoples before. So a lot of native peoples are forced to live on English terms. They have to maybe work in an English village. They have to be a servant for the English people. I mean, the idea of living the life of an Indian man or woman with dignity in a trade-based economy is quickly disappearing. So for Medicom or King Philip, uh, this is very troubling. And for most of the 1670s, even though he's only 24, uh, Medicom really, and as well as other native peoples in the region, are walking a very fine line. They're on very thin ice uh, with the English. That will all change from a cold war to a hot war in 1675. An easy way to think of the event we're going to talk about today, King Philip's War, is to think of it as one of the events that happens 100 years before our revolution. Kind of the revolution before the revolution. And as we'll see as the season goes on, we had a few of those. But I do want to take you through a basic timeline of how things go from bad to worse. Because again, a revolution, a rebellion, is a breakdown in the system. And systems don't fail all at once. There's many reasons that lead to that. And I want you to see what some of them look like. We'll go to December of 1674. In December of 1674, uh, a pretty major flashpoint event in the origins of King Philip's War begins. And it, it really embodies what a lot of the struggle is. Uh, there's a man named John Sassaman. John Sassaman was born a Wampanoag. He made the conscious decision to become a Christian. He took on a Christian name. He graduated from Harvard. He worked closely with a lot of the Puritan forces within New England. And because of that, Sassaman was a man of two worlds. Somewhere along the line, he will really get the ear of some powerful people in the English world, even though, again, he's formerly an Indian, if you can formerly be an Indian. Uh, and he sort of spills the beans that there's a lot of contentious characters out there, uh, and there very well be maybe an Indian war coming, which would be largely disastrous for the colony. As a result of that, he will be murdered by, again, the other half of his life. The English used him 
as a way of gathering intelligence, the Indians punished him as a traitor. And he'll be murdered as a result of that. Sassaman was known as a praying Indian, quote-unquote, uh, because, again, he was Christianized. But notice he's still an Indian, a praying Indian. He'll be murdered because of this. Now, things start to heat up as a result of that. Uh, in 1675, uh, a young woman named Mary Rowlandson in the Massachusetts Bay village of Lancaster is kidnapped, and she you know, keeps a pretty detailed account, which becomes one of the, the, the most fantastic pieces of literature uh, from the colonial period about what life is like as an Indian captive. But you're seeing these little uh, bubblings up, I guess you could say, of tension, violence, kidnapping, set to explode. Uh, she'll be, by the way, kidnapped in February, the winter of 1675. She'll be released by May. So... Uh, you see her with about four months of real captivity. But here's the real flashpoint. And again, it's what sets all of this in motion. Three Wampanoag men will be tried in an English court and found guilty of murdering John Sassaman, the praying Indian, a year earlier. They are not judged in ways that the Wampanoags would have done themselves. They're not done in ways, or tried in ways that the Wampanoags would have approved of. And they are not executed in ways that the Wampanoags approved of. But they are killed. All three of those things are met. So, it's very hard to pinpoint where a rebellion starts. Because it doesn't just fall from the sky. But in King Philip's War, as tradition holds, as most experts will say, the trial and execution of the murderers of John Sassaman in June of 1675, really start this up. Indian War is a terrible thing if you're a European. And it's an especially terrible thing if you live in Massachusetts because you are guided by a deep, reverent religiosity that people in Virginia don't have and people in the middle colonies don't have. Uh, at this point, there is no Pennsylvania. New York is a place. It's not called New York, though. It's called New Amsterdam. And it's controlled by the Dutch. Uh, New York City, Manhattan, whatever you want to call it, New Amsterdam, is a place that New York is really a lot like today. A lot of people from all over the world move to New Amsterdam. And they don't really have an allegiance to one country or the other. But the idea that the Dutch were there was such a threat to the English uh, that the English, even before King Philip's War started in New England, formed like a military partnership between the major New England colonies. And this will serve as sort of military infrastructure, uh, pre-existing, not used lately, but pre-existing from that New Amsterdam conflict that will be pretty useful in defending against the general uprising that's about to occur. June 20th, 1675, a group of warriors from the Pockanocket tribe rise up and attack a series of homesteads in and around the Plymouth colony, uh, most notably Swansea. Indian raids were fast, they were brutal, they were terrible. Uh, but they weren't as barbaric as the New Englanders would have made them out to be. Uh, there's an old saying that an Indian never forgets a kindness and never forgives a slight. So before these attacks would come on a village like Swansea, for example, 
the uh, Indian warriors would have sent messengers into the village to the people that were actually kind to them previously and would tell them, get out, because we're going to burn you down. And those who took heed were gone, and those who didn't suffered some pretty disastrous fates. Some people were kidnapped. Uh, some people were murdered. Some people were tortured. If you're into, by the way, ritual torture, I recommend my new book, uh, War in the Peaceable Kingdom. Unlike other scholars, I don't leave any of the gory details out because they're just too important not to. But this begins the general war, King Philip's War. And again, if you contrast it to uh, what we saw in terms of a foundation of the colony, this Thanksgiving creation story, it's not a myth, it happened. What you have here is quite the opposite. You have a perfect world in the Thanksgiving story, Massasoit's kingdom, and then you have a breakdown of society. And now you're in Metacom's kingdom, King Philip's kingdom. And it's a kingdom of war. June 28, 1675, settlers fight back. They attack a small Indian village, but one that's very, uh, very recognizable in what is today Rhode Island called Mount Hope. And it's a retaliation for the attacks at Swansea. In retaliation to that, July 1675, uh, the, the villages of Middleborough and Dartmouth are destroyed. In, uh, a week later, uh, another attack on Menden in the Plymouth Colony goes down. August 2nd, two weeks after that, the Brookfield settlement of the Plymouth Colony is destroyed. Two weeks after that, the Lancaster settlement in Plymouth Colony is destroyed. All of these are effectively battlefields in Massachusetts still today. And this sounds kind of redundant, or maybe not as useful. I'm listing off attacks in one-week or two-week intervals. Uh, but I want you to understand or get a sense of this, that what's going on here is a total war. I mean, King Philip's war by the end of it. Think about this figure. This is really shocking, and it's why I'm going through this list. King Philip's war per capita will be the bloodiest war in American history. Think about that. Now, there weren't as many people, so the damage wasn't as great in terms of numbers. But in terms of total people who live there to the amount of people killed or wounded, King Philip's war may be the bloodiest of them all. It was an enormously destructive event. And it burst a lot of bubbles, I think, in the New England world. But here we'll get into the stuff of legend. September 1st, 1675, the Wampanoags attack a town called Hadley. And apparently here at Hadley, whether this happened or not, we can't be sure, a legend arises called the Angel of Hadley. And the Angel of Hadley is a man with a white beard. He picks up a gun and he leads a militia charge, sort of an unofficial defense of the town. Uh, and then he vanishes, apparently, after the battle. And no one knows who this person was. At least no one will say. He becomes known as the, again, the Angel of Hadley. And that's another thing I really want to, uh, to stress to you. Remember, this is a, a population in New England here in 1675 that's only 20 years or less away from the Salem Witch Trials. The hysteria of Salem. This idea of an invisible spiritual world. So, for them to have divine interference in the form of an angel, so to speak, is not out of the question. In fact, maybe it's expected. And even more than that, uh, what are very real machinations of Indian war can very easily be 
confused for or seen as the work of the devil. Again, this is still 20 years before the witch trials, but they are coming. And make no mistake, this war will linger in their minds as far as the reality and existence of evil uh, in the world. September 9th, 1675. Remember we talked about that confederation that existed in New England with Plymouth Colony, Massachusetts Bay Colony, the New Haven Colony, Connecticut today, uh, and Rhode Island. They will finally, after two months of Indian raids, pool their resources, or at least try, to defend the frontier. How do they defend it? They attack Indian villages. And they don't attack them in an organized way. They attack them in raids. September 18th, 1675, uh, you have the Battle of Bloody Brook. Finally, a real battle. Not a raid by one side or the other. Uh, but it shows the changing nature of the war. In October, how successful are they? Uh, almost half or more of the population of the Pocomtuck tribe is wiped out. So this is a war where the line between good and bad is very blurry. And the tactics are very blurry as well. This will lead us to one of the seminal events of King Philip's War. And again, one that will linger for generations still in Massachusetts. It's called the Great Swamp Fight. With an organized military force, uh, New England militia units will move into an area that is today... Uh, near South Kingston, Rhode Island. And they'll find a relatively peaceful collection uh, of homes of the Narragansett tribe. These are not people who have been, have been participating in the, in the conflict. These are not people who have been engaged in the conflict, at least not most of them. Uh, and what this New England militia force will do, out of the zeal and anger of now going on six months of combat, it's December, it's winter, people are not prepared for this, they'll burn the whole thing down. The notable thing about the Great Swamp Fight was that, again, these were mostly non-combatants. The Narragansetts were not even involved in this war yet. And most of the people, including women and children, and you'll hear that a lot this season, trust me, uh, are burned alive. One of the people who participated in the Great Swamp Fight uh, would later go to his minister because, again, there is no separation of church and state in colonial New England. And he'll recall smelling the burning bodies of 300 people. And he will ask his minister, is it still a godly thing? Is it still a matter of divine retribution? If we burn and kill innocent people alive. And of course, their minister would say yes. March of 1676. No fighting in January. No fighting in February. Fighting finally in March. The very beginnings of an inkling of spring. After what is, by all accounts, a very tough winter. We see the real force of the Indian Rebellion show its face. Because to this point... They've been striking villages that are beyond the original agreements with Massasoit 50 years earlier. Remember, Massachusetts went beyond the Connecticut River to as far as Deerfield. That was far out of their range. But you hadn't seen Indian strikes yet uh, at the real heart of New England, at the place that was really the base 
of these New England colonies. And for the first time that March, uh, Indian warriors will strike at Plymouth Plantation. I mean, this is Plymouth. This is it. I mean, this is an age before Boston. Plymouth is the bee's knees, if you will, of colonial America, of colonial New England, and they attack it. This strikes real fear into the heart of most Puritans. Again, to this point, this has been a frontier conflict. This has been something in the distance. But now it's home. Now it's home. Two weeks later, again, one of the other seminal moments of the war, you have what's called the Nine Men's Misery Incident. In response to the attack on Plymouth, uh, a captain named Michael Pierce took 60 men from the Plymouth colony and some friendly allied Indians, which were important as well, into the wilderness for revenge. Uh, they were attacked, largely destroyed. The bodies of nine of these men were later recovered, badly mutilated, badly tortured, nothing new in Indian war. The physical destruction, the demolition, the desecration of the human form is a symbolic part of Indian warfare. And the Nine Men's Misery event uh, is one that really exemplifies that. How shocking is it for the people that find the bodies? Because, again, they hadn't really seen this yet. Not at least this far east, not this far toward the coast. How shocking was it? They almost immediately memorialized the site. And if you go to the site of the Nine Men's Misery today which is just outside of Central Falls, Rhode Island. Uh, you can see a plaque there. It's a new one, but there had been some kind of marker almost from when the event happened. Most consider this place to be the oldest uh, historical marker in the New World. But the war is changing. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. March fighting ends. April fighting ends. May, as ambitious as an attack on Plymouth was, you're going to have an attack now on Providence, Rhode Island by the Indian warriors. And Providence, Rhode Island will be completely destroyed as well. June 12th, 1676, you have a major battle. And 250 native warriors from different tribes uh, are defeated near what is uh, the village of Marlboro. This will cause really major strains in this unified Indian force. Because, again, they come from tribal nations. They don't have a history of cooperating. But this has become a general insurgency in New England. Uh, Indians understood, even though they had different visions for what New England would be, um, they all agreed that it wasn't whatever the white people wanted. So they would work together. Uh, but after this, this defeat at Marlboro, um, you start to see many warriors begin to flee, begin to disaffect. Uh, because for them, uh, there really is not an end in sight that benefits them. How bad does it get? Well, Metacom, King Philip, is sort of public enemy number one. He's the face of the movement. We call it King Philip's War. And he's in hiding, largely. He's moving with his warriors. Uh, the powers that be in New England will find his, his wife and his children and people he, he knows and are close to, uh, and they'll put them all on ships and effectively sell them into slavery into the Caribbean. 
uh, they believe that exporting these people is the best way of settling this problem. Call it mass deportation, if you will, uh, 17th century style. But it happens. And when they do this, they know the psychological blow that will deliver to Medicom. Uh, they know that with warriors leaving and his family now gone, Medicom is very unlikely to continue his fight. And that's absolutely true. He says after that happens that he is ready for death. August 12th, 1676, uh, about a year and four months after the war started, uh, in what is today Rhode Island, Medicom will be killed. As a result of this, uh, you see the first great Indian rebellion of New England fall to pieces. And it's all bad for the natives. Now, again, this is a season about rebellions. But really, what is a rebellion if not a competing vision for what life should be like in a specific place? And isn't that like a very American thing that we've seen time and time again? Major rebellions. This will leave a lasting scar in colonial New England. Uh, if you can imagine the end of this, it kind of goes down this way. Not very godly, by the way. Uh, but throughout the war, the annual Thanksgiving or days of Thanksgiving, which were strictly Christian holidays for the Puritans, uh, were suspended. Because the, the Metacom War, King Philip's War, was so destructive, they felt like they had very little to be thankful for. At the end of that war, Metacom's head is brought into uh, the major population centers of the East and put on display on a spike. Beheaded, stuck on a spike, and left in the middle of town for months uh, as a symbol. And they have their annual Thanksgiving finally again around that severed head. Uh, that's gross, okay? And I appreciate they were uh, very motivated by being involved, but... Uh, yikes, you know. Um, good thing we live in the civilized world of the 21st century. But this is, again, a, an event that will scar this region. And it'll play out in a lot of different ways. Uh, but the one thing I want to impress upon you, even though Metacom, King Philip, and his warriors lost, uh, was the amount of damage they afflicted, inflicted on the New Englanders. Again, New England at that point, Massachusetts Bay, just for example, extended beyond the Connecticut River to Deerfield. All of those villages will be destroyed, burned, laid waste as far east as Concord. So you're talking about more than three quarters of what was the Massachusetts Bay colony wiped off the face of the earth in basically a 16-month period. Uh, that is a shocking amount of devastation. And that is not something that's going to disappear or ease over time. Also, interestingly enough, the solution to this war, the treaties and the agreements, will be signed by uh, a governor named Edmund Andros. This will be done largely without England itself playing a role. This will be a local event. And... In a lot of ways, it's the first of many local events that I think will 
uh, later plant the seed for a total separation from Great Britain. I mean, it's not like King Philip's War leads to the revolution. It's 100 years away, but I think this sense of independence and independent spirit separate from the king and the crown uh, in New England especially, because that's where the revolution will really start in a lot of ways, is set by this event. If you were confused by what we just talked about, Metacom's War, King Philip's War, uh, don't worry, because people were confused back then too. And here's one of my favorite stories. Uh, during the American Revolution, a British force sailed near Rhode Island. And again, this is where Metacom will be ultimately captured and killed. And he will hear from a local that that is where King Philip died. And this British soldier will make a note in his journal that says that uh, I saw the spot where King Philip, the Emperor of Spain, died. Uh, he was also named Philip, Philip II. So that's like a very humorous thing, but it's also very typical of history. Uh, that almost immediately after... Uh, you're seeing this uh, this reconciliation with the facts. I think King Philip's War is an important place to start because it's not a successful rebellion. I mean, by all accounts, it is destroyed. It's squashed. But it does give us a sense of why people fight rebellions. And it's not the last Indian rebellion we're going to see. And it's not the last time we're going to see Europeans and Indians teaming up to fight one or the other. The New World is a complicated place. But again, this is an age of promise. This is an age of the New World. And what that New World is, as we'll see even into the modern day, is still very much up for grabs. Thank you for joining us. I am pumped about this season. Glad to be back. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.